You may be seated. What a great honor today to have my friends Alessandro and Marcia Pereira have been connected with this church uh, for uh, since probably 1999-2000. Met Alessandro right during that time. He was a bachelor hanging around Mazari Sharif and other places in Afghanistan as the Taliban was in this was prior to pre-9-11. And, of course, the Taliban are starting to regain power, which is sad. But, uh, you know, he was there as a bachelor, hanging out and, you know, trying to bring Afghanis to Jesus. And he'll tell you the great growth of what took place in the last 20 years. We have sown time and prayer and teams into him because we believed it was good seed. And you're going to see how that has expanded Marcian fell in love with a Brazilian girl because he's Brazilian. He, just, he's, he was biased. You know, I tried to bring some Norwegian girls in his presence. He just didn't want it. I want a Brazilian girl. Amen. They're great. They got great kids. Isabella, why don't you stand up? Lucas, stand up. They're wonderful children. Would you just welcome them here today? Amen. 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 Alessandro, why don't you come up? Marcia, are you going to join him up here? You didn't say anything at first service. I want you to say something. My wife says Marcia has to say something. Come on up here. Welcome to City Harvest Church here. Hi. Hi, hi. Uh, great. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be back here. It's great to see many of you again. Uh, greetings from uh, Central Asia, where we come from. We live in this country called Tajikistan. It does exist. It is there. And uh, we've been uh, in Central Asia for the last 22 years, most of which we were in Afghanistan. And uh, But about six years ago, God moved us to this over the border, to this land, to this country, where he expanded our ministry to use that place to begin to train uh, the local church planting leaders that we were beginning to be involved with. When we worked in Afghanistan, we saw uh, a number of people uh, become committed believers, and some of them really became the first apostles of the country. Uh, and we began to, by God's grace, be involved with this beautiful acts type of, you know, beginning of a movement in, in that part of the world. So we have a few slides to just show you guys. And yes, uh, Marcia, please. So what we're doing... We're expanding the kingdom. We're doing church planning. We're training people. And we're also reaching out to the poor, praying that God will show us uh, strategies that bring transformation to communities. So we, this is our, our friends from our business. We have a, a pizza business there. Many of you know, heard about. And uh, you can keep moving. We, we're involved with, you know, like I said, training some of these leaders. We've been doing that. And you can keep going. Uh, these are some amazing, precious people. Some of them who have been really, uh, for years now, faithfully standing in the middle of Afghanistan as a Christian. Afghanistan, if you didn't know, is going through a, a, a real, uh, resurge of the Taliban. Uh, they actually have a new law, and this is just the country itself for people to have new identity, uh, ID cards. And in this new ID system, every citizen was going to have to uh, display on their ID card their religion. And our the leaders, the, the local believers that we've been involved with, they've been praying and seeking God for a long time now what to do. And the deadline came, and they all went there this past week, and they felt that they should say that, you know, declared themselves as Christians. For the first time in history, this Afghan, there is a public Afghan church that is coming, you know, above ground. And now we need your prayers because as the Taliban continues to grow in that country, every checkpoint they're going to go through, they're going to have to show their ID that says Christian. So we really, those are dear friends of ours and part of our lives there. So we need your prayers. So you can keep going. We started a little pizza shop, many of you know, in Dushanbe, Tajikistan. Uh, that gives us a, uh, you know, it's a public identity. It's a way to, for us to bless the nation. We are employing, you can keep going, we're employing now uh, about 30 people. It's a big operation. Uh, um, you know, our main goal is to bring community transformations and bring the kingdom 
So it's not a very, it's not that we have a lot of profit, but we have profit in terms of lives as we are with this 30 people working with them, many of them single moms and uh, also Muslims and working with them every day. We, we moved from a little hole in the wall to a bigger place where we are in now. And uh, you can keep going. We have some amazing people. Like I said, many of them, you know, very Muslims. And, but that God has given us as a strategy to become friends with them and, and bring the kingdom uh, to their families. So 30 families that are somehow supported because of this little pizza shop, which is a blessing. So you can keep going. Yeah, now we are going to open our second pizza shop in the in this other side of the city that has a, you know, very, it has no missionary presence. It has no Christian presence that we know of. So we're starting a pizza shop there now, and we're going to send a new team there now as of August, starting in August. So you can go. We, all in all, really involved with church planning, really seeing people come to Christ is our main reason to be there. We, this last year and a half through COVID and everything else, God really blessed us and we began to see a new level of multiplication. We planted two churches this past year and a half, one among a refugee, Afghan refugee community. We're running a soccer program with 30 Afghans and uh, we have a brother that came from Afghanistan. Uh, he was planting a church in Afghanistan and his family began to get persecuted by the Taliban. His father got a letter from the Taliban saying that, you know, he was bringing shame to their country and they needed to get him out of the country. So they came across the border and joined us. And he started this new church that we have about, and now we have about 20 Afghan refugees in this church. Uh, and we also in the villages in Tajikistan uh, doing that. And so in Kabul, you know, the church that, the church network that we were a part of starting in the very beginning of our time there in Kabul, we have this house church, this one house church that takes turns every day with about 60 believers. Every day there's a meeting there and God is just growing and they're doing now online evangelism. They started a podcast in Easter day. They had 140 people view their podcast and and I, I think over uh, 140,000 people view their podcasts and thousands of others listened all the way. And, you know, this is all their own initiative. These believers, this new church is really set for growth. And the Holy Spirit is at work in them. You know, all we did was to come around, but God is really doing. It's his work. You know, and these people are just incredible. Lots of, you know, uh, evangelistic, online evangelistic strategies and translating of material. Our team is involved in doing all that. You can keep going. Just some pictures of some about some people that we've been involved with in, in, in seeing, you know, the church emerge. You can keep going. We are in three locations. The city, the, the capital city where we have the pizza shop, where we run our training programs. We also working with refugees, Afghan refugees, and in the villages. So we got these three locations going on, and it's busy. It's a lot of work. So keep going, please. Yeah, this is just some of the guys, uh, the Afghan refugees that work in our soccer program. Uh, this guy here in the middle with a beard, uh, he's an amazing, God's just changed his life. He was living in the streets when we met him, uh, an Afghan refugee that came to Christ, and for the last five years, we've been discipling him, and now he's leading, a, you know, this whole project there. You can go. Marcia, would you talk a little bit about some of these people that were involved? With? These are some of the local leaders that we're involved with. And would you? Um, so you asked us, like, hi, everybody. Good to see you. It's good to be back. Feels, this, this place here feels like home to us. I was remembering, like, the times that we here, Lucas was dedicated here Isabella too and now we come back and they're teenagers and whatnot so like like many times important times of our lives were uh spent here so we're really happy to be here so you asked us what do we do there it's all this and we're, I what comes the word comes to my heart is family we are family there we had father and mother 
and everybody becomes part of your home. And you become, uh, you are, you are there for them. And they start to see what the God's kingdom is all about. What's this transformational love of Jesus is all about is when you are there for them. It's not about religion. It's about the love of Jesus for them. And they are there and, uh, they come to our house and, uh, they come from different places, different ethnic groups, different backgrounds, but we break bread together. We are there together. We pray. We cry together. We, uh, wrestle with in difficult times and like a family. And we see them getting, uh, we, we see them going, getting stronger and getting mature in the Lord and then venturing their own, uh, paths with the Lord and taking the gospel to their own people. And that's what we are there for. And, um, Alessandra and I are more than happy to see the next generation rising up and, uh, and doing and amazing things for Jesus. So we are now witnessing fruits of our fruit. So this is a, this is a privilege and you are part of this. You're part of the story. Can you imagine that? You're reaching the Persian world. And it's amazing to see. And it was a privilege to have Bob and Sue there and Pastor Tyrone and Virginia there this year because they saw it's chaotic. It was hot in the room. Many languages spoken at the same time, but we understand each other. Things get done. And for the glory of Jesus. And we, we are seeing this, guys. It's happening. Even in this crazy year. Things are happening on the other side of the world for God's glory. Amen. 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 Yeah, we uh, involved with, you know, these people that are now leaders that were in the grip of Islam and now rising up for the kingdom. So just to finish, as, as Pastor Bob comes up and get me out of here. Uh, no, 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 you're doing good. You're doing uh, good. These are, you know, just people from, yeah, all the people that were involved with, some of the people were involved with that you can see. And uh, you can keep going. The other thing we did, we, we, we started a training program. And that's why Pastor Robin Sue came this year to teach in our training program for missionaries coming from other nations. And we had uh, 14 uh, foreigners, uh, other missionaries come to get trained. 12 of them stayed on. And they are going to, they are on a two-year internship with us. And what they're doing, they're preparing to go pioneer new teams in new unreached locations and some of those places where we're going, these are some of those people that we were involved with in the training, but the places where they're going. We're starting another team in northern Afghanistan. We're starting a new team in Iran, running a coffee shop. We're starting a gas house in southern Uzbekistan. Our pizza shop might be expanding to Turkmenistan. All these missionaries that came and joined us, they caught the vision and they stayed and they committed themselves to starting churches in each of these locations. So we're going even, guys, to Yemen. And God, uh, my heart, our heart has always been broken for war-torn nations. So we're so excited with this amazing opportunity to be able to somehow get into Yemen in the next couple of years and begin to bring, you know, the love of Jesus through many ways and see churches planted there. We want to see a coffee shop and a CrossFit gym started there. Uh, but yeah... This, this is the part of the world we're working in. All these nations, you know, we call these, uh, we call ourselves, you know, we made our own kind of uh, map, mapping way of talking about this area. Areas up to 1 million people, we call them Omega Zones. And Central Asia has about 438 Omega Zones. And we want to see a team in each one of these areas. So we ask your prayers. For us to see churches in each one of these 438 uh, places, Omega Zones. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for supporting us, for praying for us. We love you guys. We want to get back to you soon. We're, we're going we're gonna to pray for them just a second. But also, when we bring uh, guys home, you know, one thing we do do is we try to load them up with money. I'm just going to be, we're not weird about money here. Like, oh, they're talking about money. Yeah, money makes this happen. And uh, you say, well, they got a great pizza business, but they don't really profit at all. They get, they get paid a little pennies on that, and they still have to live on support. And Lucas here, Lucas, stand up so we can see your handsome face. <laughs> okay, Lucas has hit the wall on education that he can get in Tajikistan, finish his high school education, get ready for college. 
he has to, he's going to go to a boarding school in Germany. It costs some money. It costs him $25,000. So just for one year's tuition, he said, well, he just goes to a public school. <laughs> Those aren't options. Those aren't options. So we're, we're going to, just, if God puts on your heart to give, to help them to be able to face this cost this year, and what the Lord puts it on your heart to help them have sown their lives in probably the most dangerous place in the world. Uh, you know, I, you can give on the realm. It's to Mega International. That's the umbrella organization that they are overseeing. And that's what it looks like on the realm when you go to give on that. Or you can write a check, City Harvest Church. We'll make sure it gets to, uh, gets right to them. So let's stand to our feet. Let's pray for these guys and bless them right now. We thank you in Jesus' name for the Pereiras, the great work they're doing, for Isabella, for Lucas. You just come, I'll just, I'll, you can stay there. You can stay there. My hand will reach to you. The anointing's on you. And uh, just thank you, Lord, for them. We thank you, Lord, that you've anointed them. You've opened doors that no man can shut. You protect them over and over and over and over again. We thank you that they've been delivered over and again from the evil agendas of Satan against them. We thank you, Lord, for the prosperous of the, the prosperity of the work. What an increase, an increase and increase throughout these Omega regions. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. And to tell them thank you for the work that they're doing. They will also be around uh, probably between now and mid-July. And so if you want to connect with them, have lunch, invite them over for dinner and, you know, talk, talk more with them about their vision and what they're doing, they're available. That's why one of the reasons why they're here. And uh, they're also getting some rest and everything else and, and uh, you know, eating a lot of my food at my house. <laughs> no, just, just teasing. Uh, they're, they're great people. It was a great honor to be with them. It's a life-changing experience. And my only grief is that when my picture was up there today, you, it went really fast through that slide. And <laughs> I was hoping you kind of hold that still for a second so everyone can see me. But uh, well, I got, uh, I got uh, an announcement that I must make here. You know, wave at me because I'll, I'll forget this every time. I'm just kind of getting so excited about what I'm going to preach about. But uh, you're going to get a letter in the mail, email this afternoon. A tie to it will be a, an updated copy of our Constitution. According to uh, our, our present Constitution, if we're going to ratify a, a, a new updated version of our Constitution, it, it requires the elders to sign on a majority vote that's already taken on. And it requires the a majority of the members to vote to accept that Constitution. The changes are basically we add two articles of faith to our articles of faith. And uh, we also restructured the eldership in terms of how long someone serves, how they renew serving that particular term, and even how the, what majority means when an eldership says we're thumbs up or thumbs down on something. We think it has higher accountability, uh, and uh, I think it's even going to be better effective in operating the, the government of this church. So in that, uh, you'll have a copy of that. If you have questions, you can call us. And uh, you can email. We have emails for me, Pete Schrader, and uh, Bill Scheidler. We can answer any questions you have on the Constitution. And there's going to be a vote on August 1st to ratify that. Now, also in that letter is our announcement that we're selling the little yellow house on the corner right here. Okay, we, we have had that. We've used it for ministry, but we're kind of just grace is not on that. And we're moving on to other things. And uh, we have money in that little house, and we got money. We sectioned off 7,500 square feet of a, a little backyard to sell that. We think it'll just go like that. And most likely, the bank's going to let us keep all the equity. We're in a great, healthy financial position as a church right now with savings and money. But this will actually throw us in the best posture financially we've ever been in in the church, in reserve and security and now that I'm stepping aside, we have money. But, uh, but, uh, but this will help us really be able to move forward in the vision. And uh, so, but to do that, Article 13.1 of the Constitution says we have to have the, the confirmational vote of the, of the congregation to do that. So if you have a special affection for that yellow house, you want to tie yourself to it, I'm not going to let you sell it. You can vote, okay? But it has to be a majority vote that tells us that we can't do that. But that'll come to you also. All right, saying those things. That's going to be in your email this afternoon. 
and probably around three or four-ish in the afternoon. Let's, let's get into the Word, and I want, we're on the parables of Jesus. We're actually finishing it today, and, and I'm going to just speak on what I think is probably the most famous of the parables of Jesus that everybody knows, and that's even unchurched people know it. Like everyone knows Psalm 23. Everyone knows this this parable called the Good Samaritan, except people think a Samaritan is a guy that wears kind of a cone-shaped hat with a tassel on the top that marches around in parades and, you know, and raises money for children's hospitals. And, and that, that's all nice and, and, and good, but a Samaritan in, in the context of the biblical times was, was something else. So let's read our text today, the parable itself. Behold, a, a lawyer stood up to put him to, te- to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this was a lawyer, not like a criminal lawyer. This was a scribe and a scholar of the law. And he, put, he wants to put Jesus to test. He wants to trip Jesus up in his words. He wants to show that Jesus misinterprets the law. He wants to show that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about when it's the law. He's here not to learn, but to put Jesus on the spot. What I love about Jesus, as I'm reading these parables, is Jesus has this gracious way of turning the gun towards the other guy. And he has this, he he gets knocked in the corner, and within just one word of wisdom, he has the other guy on the ropes, you know, fighting for his life, and this is what he's going to do. So the the teacher, uh, excuse me, saying, teacher, he's quoting, he's, he's saying to Jesus, Rabbi, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's not an uncommon question, even in the Gospels that Jesus was asked. And he he said to him, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? It's interesting that Jesus didn't say, just believe in me. Okay, he goes deep, he goes to the law. And and of course, the the teacher answered, the scholar answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. He quotes from two verses of the Old Testament. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the teacher, desiring to justify himself or to give himself credibility, because he got commended that, you've, that you have interpreted this correctly, but he wants to make sure that everyone looking on who knows his lifestyle is uh, not pointing fingers at him, that he's not obeying it. So he needs a clarification on something to establish his own credibility that he's keeping this law. And he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Obviously, that that part bothered him. He did it correctly, but he, he needed definition on who actually am I bound to in this commandment? And Jesus replied, and, and, and to this man, he, instead of Jesus answering the question, Jesus answers with a story. Instead of defining who is his neighbor, he actually is going to define who was acting as a neighbor. And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem's 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho's 800 feet below sea level. It's 3,500 feet foot descent. A long, rugged road, a lot of clefts, cliffs, a lot of places where robbers could hide, dangerous road and transportation. And this man coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, most likely a Jew coming from Jerusalem. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. I appreciate this because this guy just didn't have a sprained ankle. You might find someone on a trail backpacking or hiking. They sprung their ankle. This guy was beat to a pulp. This guy probably had internal bleeding. He could have had lacerations all over the place. If he had not had aid, he was going to die. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, instead of having compassion and getting involved, he passed by on the other side. I need to get to church. I need to do a Bible study. So likewise, a Levite, okay, who was be like our deacons today in church, and there they, they didn't do the ministry of offering offerings or teaching the law, but they served the temple and all its natural needs. When he came to that place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. He's saying to himself, man, it's time for me to get to church. I got I to gotta be an usher. I got to do this. I gotta, I, I, I'm door greeting today. I'm sorry, buddy. Sorry. 
but a Samaritan. And to us, we, because we don't live 2,000 years ago, we don't live in the midst of the tension between Samaritans and the Jews. We don't appreciate the irony of what Jesus is doing here. Okay? Samaritans were not liked by the Jews. And Samaritans did not like Jews. It's not that one group hated an innocent group. They both hated each other, as we will see. And as he journeyed, he came to where he, the broken man, was half dead, and when, and where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Actually, the word compassion means to suffer with, to identify with someone's pain. He went to him, bound up his wounds, but wrapping, he actually poured on oil and, and wine. And, of course, the alcohol affects the the. Uh, the slowing down the affection of the infection and he's treating him and then he sets him on his own animal and brought him to an inn the local motel six wherever this was and he took care of him and the next day he took out two denarii now a lot of your other translations say two silver coins and and commentators differ on this but but some believe he actually gave two weeks worth of his wages others believe it's two months of his wages but he puts this this deposit, I'm paying for the room. Let's just call it two months. There's two months of, uh, because this guy's beat up pretty bad, of, of money that will hold him. When I come back through, I'll pay whatever is rest. I mean, whatever is owed on the bill. <clears throat> this guy has, has invested heavily. Take care of him. Whatever he spends, I will repay you when I come back. He had basically an open you know, just an open cost line that he could just tap into, whatever he might need. Just do that. Now, Jesus asked, which of these three? Now, Jesus now is asking questions to the lawyer. Hey, what do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He's got this guy on the ropes. The guy tried to get him on the ropes. Jesus got this guy on the ropes. And of course, he said, the teacher said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, the teacher, you go and do likewise. You tried to trip me up, but I turned this into a platform to expose your disobedience to the law in your hard heart. Now you go change your ways and go love on that guy. Go love on that guy. Now what's the lesson of the parable? The lesson of the parable is simply this. is to show goodness to people. But here's a catch. Without limitations or conditions. In other words, to show love, mercy, and compassion upon people that not that not you're familiar with or you enjoy or you agree with or you believe the same as they do or they're from the same race or the same status and culture, but to 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 basically show love and mercy to those who are different than you. Could be someone with a different sexual orientation. Could be somebody of a could be somebody who is who is you, you know, one of the homeless people that you're so upset about who are just, you know, trashing up the sides of freeways. It might be them. It might be someone who is just politically completely different than you. It might be someone from another race. It could be someone with an addiction and you don't like the lack of discipline in their life and why they are the way they are. You might put yourself in a place as a someone that might be different than you. And that no limitations, no exclusion. There's also no conditions. I mean, I will do this when it's the timing is right. Sometimes the timing's not right. You know, Sue, when she was a teacher, uh, she did a lot of different sub-assignments. You know, in Vancouver school, she still does teach. She wasn't was a teacher. She is. She was at a, a junior high. I think it was in the Vancouver school district. Could have been the Evergreen school district. And this kid was in school with his feet coming out of his shoes. There was no sole in his shoes. So kind of a kid was, came from a homeless family, just got into an apartment. And Sue was going to march him down to the office. We need to get these kids shoes. And the Lord spoke to her, you buy him shoes. And so she buys him shoes, she goes, and she takes the kid home. She meets the parents. They just moved into an apartment. They lived two years in a park here in Vancouver. And, uh, you know, I'd like to buy your son's shoes. And I'm gonna, can I take him? You know, to, I think she went to Walmart or Target. And, of course, they said, can we come? And of course, can you buy us something? And so she ended up buying everybody clothes. And then on top of that, when I got home, we had about 10 to 12 huge hefty bags, like the 50 gallons of laundry, piled up in our mudroom all the way into our kitchen. Sometimes showing compassion has real bad timing. <laughs> Lord, don't you know the pressures we're under? Don't you know the meetings we have to go to? 
Don't you know, we're kind of, you know, you're doing all their laundry, and I can't even pay the rent this, you know, this week, you know. We have these, all these conditions. If everything is equal and smooth and margins, we can do this. But come on, this lesson teaches showing goodness without limitations and without, without conditions. I'm sure it wasn't on the agenda of the Samaritan when he was going down that road that I'm going to stop today, do medical first aid to this guy, get him on my animal, get him to a hotel, and take probably the majority of money I got on me and invest that all to go take care of him and make sure that I'm also in debt to that hotel to come back and make sure he's fully restored and whatever bills he racked up to pay those bills. I don't think that was in his agenda that day. Goodness. What is goodness? Well, goodness is moral excellence. It's virtue. It's character. It's kindness. It's benevolence towards others. It's showing generosity. That is goodness. It's really being motivated for other people. Being motivated. We have this thing in our culture. How are you? Of course, in a lot of cultures you do. You know, our Latino culture, you know, it's, you know, you know, está bien. Okay, everything good. Everything, everything's great. Yeah, you don't want the real answer. You know, my daughter, Leslie, since Ryan died, she listens to a podcast. It's, it's called Terrible. Thank you for asking. And it's raw. It's good, though. It is incredible. It's secular, but it, it is powerful of just hearing someone's story through the pain that they go through. I mean, we, we got to understand goodness means I'm motivated for other people. and I don't do anything that would benefit myself at their expense. That's really the definition of justice. That what I enjoy is not on the backs of somebody else. Very, very important. Goodness. This, story, this parable is about this. I'm motivated by this. Now, let's break this down. A teacher of the law tests Jesus with a question. And, of course, he wants to trip him up. He didn't really want to learn anything. And he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Remember, the rich young ruler came to Jesus with the same question. You know, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity in our hearts. Everybody asks this question. I had a, doc, I had a professor at, at Central Washington. His name was Dr. Unruh. He graduated out of Oxford. He was the only English professor we had on campus. He was always, you know, we were a bunch of mountain men <coughs> and hillbillies. Okay? He dressed in beautiful suits, very English and, and refined and I'll never forget, he said to us at one class, he goes, you know, there's two things that all people agree on, that we're born and that we die. What we do between the time we are born and the time to die is figure out why we were born and what happens to us after we die. That was one of the most profound things that have ever been said to me about the, about the commonality of all men. And so he's asking this question, what shall I do to inherit Okay, eternal life. And uh, what happens, we usually make up our own version of what happens to us, why we're born and what happens to us after, in our own thinking, our own wisdom, and our own deception. Well, Jesus responds with a question. And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, I may just really, really kind of stymie people. Is Jesus here teaching salvation by law or salvation by works? And uh, so I want to talk to you just for a second here about the relationship of law and grace, because we tend to think that they, they don't have any relationship with each other. I mean, we're not saved by law. Is that what Jesus teaches? What's the law say? That you just go do good to people and, and that's going to save you? That's not really what Jesus is talking about. This is not salvation by works, but faith that is expressed by works. In, in, uh, the, in the book of Galatians, in chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but what matters, but only faith working through love. If I have faith in God, then I'm going to have faith in God's word. I'm going to believe that God has breathed on men, 40 of them, over a 1,600-year period, in three different languages, on three different continents, to write his words down. I, that, that's my faith. It's called the faith. You know, the Bible in the New Testament didn't say, believe, 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 believe. They talked about this thing called the faith. Are you embracing the faith? The sum total of what's revealed in the New Testament. Are you buying into that? If you are, the New Testament, according to Jesus here, 
is love your neighbor as yourself. So if I have faith, I have to also have faith that I am mandated by God, not when I feel good or I don't have any bad feelings inside my heart towards the person, but that in all situations, in all circumstances, whenever things arise, I'm to love my neighbor. Why? Because my faith tells me that. My faith tells me to do that. I'll never forget in a restaurant in Stevenson, Washington, with Sue's aunt, and there was a person who tripped and fell in the restaurant, and I went to her aid. There was actually a doctor there, and I I automatically went there, not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Christian. You would have done the same thing. There was nothing special about that. I sat back down. We got her on her feet, and and her aunt was like aghast, like, I couldn't believe what you just did. This is just what you do. If you have faith, faith leads me to love. Well, Bob, what, what does it mean if someone doesn't love but they believe in Jesus? I would say they don't believe in Jesus. Your faith will be expressed by your love. No love, no faith. And so go back. Jesus says, well, what's the, the, what's the law say? And of course, Jesus now has got this guy in the ropes. Now I'm asking the questions to you. What does the law say? And of course, he does respond really well. The teacher cites what's called the Shema. It's quoted by the pious Jews every day. They quote this. The Shema means to hear, to hear the law of God. And they quote it every day. Or if they don't do that, they at least quote it every Sabbath in the synagogue. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In other words, if you want a relationship with me, God says, I need total devotion. We want relationship with God with half devotion with part-time devotion, with sometimes, you know, hot and cold devotion. But he wants it. I was preaching last week at Matt's church on, um, in, in Tri-Cities on Father's Day and talking about the restoration of Peter. You know the story where Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Now, it's interesting. Peter denies Jesus around a campfire outside the trial, and that's where he denies him three times by a fire. Now there's a fire. Jesus has just cooked him breakfast brings the boys to shore. Now we're going back to a fire, and we're going to kind of, it's time for us to have some unfinished business, Peter. It's time for us to talk about what you did, you know, when, by denying me. And I need to know, do you love me? Now, why did Jesus ask him three times? Well, he, first, he denied him three times. But Jesus is saying this. I don't accept an off-the-cuff answer. What I want to know is, are we back together, devoted to each other. I want, total, I want to know total devotion. And what did Jesus keep saying to him? Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. In other words, if you really love me, and that's devotion, what's tied to that, I want you to love what I love. And that's my church. He wasn't just cheaply bringing them back like we like to do. He wanted total devotion. And so first, the teacher says, yeah, we want a relationship with God is total devotion. That's what the Shema says. He also cites a second commandment that is equally as important. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the issue here is the question of then who is my neighbor? Now, why this is important, why this teacher of the law asked Jesus this question of who's my neighbor was because the strictest sect of the Pharisees believed that this commandment implied love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. You're only to love your neighbor. Only your neighbor. And then they had a definition of what that neighbor was. And it wasn't inclusive. And everything else, you're, you're able and have a license to hate. So here's the problem. The problem is this. The teacher placed a boundary, boundary limits on his love. You know, the neighbor didn't include Gentiles, and the neighbor didn't include this group that you read about in the New Testament called the Samaritans. First, let's talk about the Samaritans. We've already established they're not guys that wear cone hats 
and have tassels on their heads and walk around in Fourth of July parades, okay, or raise money for children's hospitals, which is a very good thing, or sponsor high school all-star football games. But uh, the Samaritan were a group of people that actually came together racially about the 8th century, about 700 years before Jesus, when the northern kingdom was conquered. The Assyrians came in and took out the majority of Jews, 10 tribes of them, Okay, out of that place, but left a number of Jews to keep the land. What they did then, they brought other captives from other countries in their kingdom, and they brought them as immigrants to plant in this land, and the two races mixed. And in that, the traditions of old Judaism was still there. So the Samaritans were really half-Jews, and they were half-Jews genetically and physically, but they're also half-Jews religiously or spiritually, because they had a form of Judaism. They kept the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They did not believe where the temple was on what's known as Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. They believed that what the sacred mountain was a mountain called Gerizim, and they built temples up there. So they had a little bit different system. Now, you remember the conversation of Jesus and the Samaritan woman? She said, we feel that on this mountain we're to worship. And Jesus says, not on this mountain nor is it in Jerusalem we worship, but the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's the discussion. That's the tension. Now, here's the problem. Jews didn't like Samaritans, and Samaritans didn't like Jews. There was an issue. Remember when Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, he and James and John and whoever else was on the company of the boys on, 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 at this moment wanted to spend the night in a village of the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans were open for Jesus to spend the night, but they found out he was on his way to Jerusalem, and they said, no way. You're not staying at any of our hotels here in the city. You're not welcome, Jesus. Why? Because you're on your way to Jerusalem. That kind of shows you a little bit of the level of hate. What we don't see in in the story of the Good Samaritan is this Good Samaritan may have had real deep resentment issues against the very man he cared for but he crossed that line in his own self. We think this guy just loves everybody. Maybe, but maybe he was a man who deeply resented Jews, but yet he went past that to love. And so here we have, remember, they did that. They say, you can't stay in the village. You're going to Jerusalem. And James and John, wonderful boys, you know James and John, the Zebedee boys, they said to Jesus, well, Jesus, we want to pray, and we want to pray for your father to nuke this village. Let's bomb the whole thing. I mean, let's just incinerate this sucker. Now, they didn't say it like that. They said, let's call fire out from heaven, which means let's consume them like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, in, just imagine being with a member of City Harvest Church, and what do you think about those people? They said this about Pastor Bob. I think we ought to go and just shoot them all and behead them. Hey, Bob, you got a weird member, okay, in your church. Well, this is how intense James and John are. Just to show you the level of hostility that was in the land. You see, we got these 1959 Jesus movies. Ah, they're all speaking King James English, but they didn't speak. Okay, they were speaking in Aramaic, okay, or in Koine Greek. You know, I will go to thy village and I will heal thy son. Okay, it's all nice. But when you got to get into the juiciness and the rawness of the New Testament, these guys hated each other. These guys didn't want anything to do with each other. They had to live with each other with deep resentment. And Jesus cleverly says, I'm going to answer the question of who your neighbor is. So... The racial hatred of the Jews and the Samaritans was absolutely a real cultural issue. And the door swung both ways. No one was clean. Because the only thing, the only answer to race and racial tension is Jesus. Yeah, I mean, I was showing Alessandra last night just a video of Maverick City worship, which really has a, with elevation, it was just, you know, it was a racially mixed group worshiping God with passion and he brought it up to me, this is the answer right here. This is the answer, the worship of God. We all come together. We're all bought by the blood. We all come from one blood. We're all made in the image of God, and the answer is Jesus that unifies all of us. That's the answer. So there was hatred. Now, Jesus agreed with the teachers 
with the teacher's uh, interpretation of the law and its relationship to eternal life. The problem wasn't his interpretation of answering Jesus with those two questions. The problem was his interpretation of its application. He felt like he could apply this to selective people. And that's what Jesus is going to challenge him. So he agreed on this. But the teacher, this is what the teacher wanted. He wanted to look good in relationship to the law. He wanted to look good that he was actually loving his neighbor. But he had to do that. Neighbor had to be defined so that it contained only the people that he was loving. He wanted credibility, that he was keeping Leviticus 19.18. But, you know, he wanted that clarification of this law and, and uh, so that everyone could see that he was applying it correctly. He wanted to look good. So he asked another second question to Jesus. One, what do I do to get eternal life? Two, then, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus, he flips the narrative and uh, to not who was the neighbor, but who acted as a neighbor. And Jesus does this. He uses three characters and irony. Now, what's irony? Irony is, is, is in a simple definition, it's something that is opposite of what you expect in a story. He uses three characters. First is a priest. Now, a priest was a Levite who was separated from his own tribe of Levites, and he was there to offer up all the offerings, to intercede morning and evening, to offer sacrifices morning and evening, and to represent the people to God and to be a teacher of the law. That was a priest. Second guy was, was a Levite. Now, what's a, what's a Levite? A Levite is a um, it would be, they all, no, no, notice this, all priests had to come out of the, the tribe of Levi, but not all Levites were priests. Levites, if they weren't priests, they were like deacons. They served the temple and took care of the furniture and dealt with the natural things of the temple. That's who they were. Both really radically dedicated to the temple of God. One like served the church and the other was serving God and teachers of the word and working together. That's what they were. But the third character is a Samaritan, hated by Jews and one race that hated Jews. These were the three characters that Jesus used in this Story. Now, why this is important is the priest and the Levite who were absolutely committed to the, to the holiness of God and obedience to the law. They just didn't step over the guy's body who's beat to a pulp. They went to the other side of the road so they wouldn't have to look at it. They wanted to remove from their consciousness that there was a problem. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about they're in pain. They're almost dying. I don't want to be responsible for it. And here's the bad thing. It was one of their own. I don't want to think of what I'm responsible for. It's like sometimes people like speed dial right through some of these infra commercials about feeding children in Africa. I want to go, I don't want to think about that. I'm eating a big pot of popcorn and having an ice cream. I don't want to think about some kid with a bloated stomach and he's got worms all over the place and might die at the age of five. Okay, I don't want to think about it. Let's go real fast, real fast, real fast. And I recognize that you can't and I can't give to every issue in the world that we can only do so much. But isn't it interesting? Sometimes we shove our way away from the consciousness of things that are screaming at us that are within our own power to do something. That's the irony of this story. Now, the story, we know it. He was beat to a pulp. And it's the Samaritan who comes across. Maybe he doesn't like Jews, but he sees a Jew who's beaten to a pulp in pain. Maybe you don't like the people God's speaking to you to be your neighbor. You don't agree with them. You're uncomfortable with them. You don't see eye to eye with them, whatever the issue is. But they are within your grasp, that power to do something for them, just like this Samaritan. He invests in this guy. He invests in him. It's not just that he bandages up the wounds, lays them there in the road. I hope you recover. I'm giving you a couple of days worth of food. He gets him on his horse he inconveniently takes him to some place where he can sleep. And he takes either two weeks or two months of his money to get the cost taken care of, to make sure that he's going to be fully taken care of, fully inconvenient, fully sacrificial, fully invested. So he, the Samaritan crosses four lines. He crosses the line of race, obviously. A Samaritan to a Jew. He crosses the line of hatred. 
I'm no longer going to be a part of hate, even in my own heart, possibly. I'm going to cross this line to do this. He crosses the line of personal resentment. Maybe he was in, in, uh, offended by Jews and mistreated by Jews, yet he crosses over that line. And then he, and he crosses the line of a different theology because they had different theology. Well, I'm not going to help a Mormon. Let's change the story. It's a Mormon with his white shirt and bicycle on the side of the road, okay? His tie is choking him because he hit a mailbox or something. I don't help Mormon, so maybe you need to cross the line and help that Mormon. That's what he does. And he also shows goodness in four ways. He throws mercy. You know, mercy is not just forgiveness. And it's really not forgiveness. Mercy is actually pity and compassion. He actually identifies with this guy. He feels this guy's pain. He also is available through availability. Sometimes our margins in our life are so tight, we can't do anything for everybody because we're just so consumed with agendas. He does healing. I mean, he makes sure that he healed this guy. We heal so many ways. We heal with words. We heal with prayer. We heal with faith. We heal with with listening and accepting. Lastly, restoring. He didn't just relieve him of his pain. He made sure he got totally restored back on his feet. Now, that's long-haul restoration. So Jesus asked the second question to this guy. He's got this guy in the ropes now. That guy's totally guilty, totally falling short of being obedient and in trouble with God. And he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And of course, of course the, 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 the teacher, he said, the one who showed mercy. Isn't it interesting? He couldn't even bring himself to save the Samaritan. But the one who showed mercy. That's how bad off he was. But he knew he was nailed. And Jesus gave him the mandate. You go and you do likewise. You ask me what eternal life is? It's faith working by love. You go do it. Amen.